Just this week I was rummaging through a couple of files that I haven't had a look in for a few years and I came across uh, the picture that will pop up here on the screen of a little Baptist church in Gunnawarra. Is anyone familiar with where Gunnawarra is? It's actually between Kundruk and Gunnawarra, which probably doesn't help you all that much. <laughs> We're talking up in the Kerrang area. This was uh, a little Baptist church in typical kind of fashion for some of those little Baptist churches like um, Barraport and Gunnawarra and those kind of places. A church on a small plot of land that had probably been donated by a local farmer in the middle of the paddocks. And people would just drive to the church, they'd park their cars under the trees. And on the day that I happened to be there, I was there as a guest of the person who was preaching. Uh, we went to visit the church he preached. Uh, I was quite impressed. It was one of those built. If you can imagine, the size of the building would be roughly about the size of this block of seats up to where John and Joe are sitting. So just this kind of stuff. Hard wooden pews with a single aisle, you know, the wooden floor that resonates as you walk down it would make a great floor for dancing except for the fact that Baptists don't dance. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this was the thing. At the end of the service... Um, when the service, almost as soon as the benediction had been pronounced, everybody who was there, and there might have been 20 people there, filed outside through the tiny little foyer that you can see there. There's a little brown door on the end of the church. And in the foyer, of course, is the requisite picture of George Slade, who was the minister who kind of established the circuit up through that way, a famous Australian Baptist circuit minister. Uh, past George Slade's picture and outside into the shade of the trees the church was locked and that was it and it struck me as being quite curious because I was more used to a kind of situation where after our service we went into the foyer area in the same way that we do here and you chat away or you're sitting here and you're talking to people or there's people receiving prayer or whatever it might be uh, but we don't sort of head out into the car park straight afterwards, which is what happened at Gunnawarra. And so on the way uh, to the next church, I think we were heading across somewhere else, Cobram or somewhere, um, I asked my colleague, what's the go? What's the deal with as soon as the benediction's over, everyone's outside under the trees? He said, well, it happens no matter whether it's blazing hot or freezing cold because this is the house of the Lord." And we do not have any unsanctified conversations in the house of the Lord. So don't talk about your latest tractor acquisition. Don't talk about the football. Don't talk about anything in the house. That's where we worship God. And we'll go and stand under the trees and do all of those things. It's an interesting tradition, isn't it? And I rather think that it was probably one of those traditions that was absolutely set in concrete. And if you came into that place and tried to change it, you'd very, very quickly find yourself on the outer in terms of uh, being accepted or not. It's interesting as we think about that how each church has its own culture and its own little proclivities and as locals you don't see them. Those of us who've been here for a few years will just not recognise some of the things that make us who we are that a visitor or a new person will say, oh I wonder why they do that or isn't that interesting that this is here or isn't it strange that they're behaving in that way. There are usually things uh, in the building, there are, should I say, there are usually things in the building that um, speak to our values 
and our theology. Now I want you to think about that for a second. What is there in this place that speaks about our values or our theology? You're pointing over to the cross? Absolutely, speaks to uh, a central element. I thought you were pointing to the ramp because that speaks to our values too. We value our children. We have created one of the best indoor playgrounds that any church (laughs) in Victoria has. So far as I can tell, nobody's actually used it because they've needed to use it. But after the service, the kids have a great time over there. We love our children. It's one of our values. And I say that with all seriousness, actually, because we actually put a lot of effort and uh, no small investment into our kids' program. But the cross is an obvious one, isn't it? And there are other values that we communicate too. We have people who greet on the door. We have our coffee machine. We want to be a hospitable place. We want to be a welcoming place. We have a pleasant kind of environment. I think um, this week we had hoped to install our new air conditioner. Could have had a practice with it this morning. It's quite warm up here. Unfortunately, it didn't happen through this week. We're waiting till the weather turns turns cold. Uh, (laughs) That way we don't wear it out so fast. But we welcome, uh, we welcome people into a comfortable environment because we value people feeling comfortable in this space. But theologically, there's some stuff going on in this space as well. Uh, one of the more obvious symbols of our theology is, of course, the cross, and it speaks of what Jesus did in defeating sin and being raised back to life. But what else in this place communicates our theology? What else communicates what it is that we believe We have, I'll come back to that baptistry in a second. Thanks, Rob. Uh, Let's talk about this, the pulpit. This is uh, one of the more curious pulpits that I've ever encountered because it seems to go walkabout every week. You never actually know for sure where it's going to be on a Sunday morning. It might be over here and it might be over there and on a few occasions it's even managed to get out into the foyer vestry out the back there. Uh, But when we come to preach, where's the pulpit found? Front and centre. Now, that's not true in every church, is it? If you go into a a, a more traditional liturgical church, what will you find right smack bang in the front and centre? It's the communion table. Because theologically, the sacraments are central to that church's worship life. We have our communion table over here. It doubles up as a work desk. It, uh, it's used for a communion table from time to time and every now and again it's even used as a platform when we want to climb up somewhere. But I probably shouldn't have told you that. <laughs> we Baptists <clears throat> tend to have our pulpits uh, front and centre because one of our theological values is the preaching of the Word of God. I have a letter that I found in the same file as that photo from the church at Gunawara a letter from a pastor friend who wrote these words when I was ordained back in 1870 or somewhere. Um, He said, Preaching remains the principal method in the purpose of God for the dissemination of the gospel. By preaching, I mean the careful exposition of scriptural truths and themes in such a way that eternal truth impinges on contemporary life. What a great statement that is, isn't it? And that, that actually communicates something that is very core to Baptist theology. We believe in the preaching of the word. And so typically, if you go to a Baptist church, you'll find the pulpit right smack bang in the middle. If you go to uh, a a liturgically focused church, it'll be the communion table and the pulpit will be off to the side, a reflection of their theology. Our theology 
uh, picks up just by the way what Paul said to Timothy there in 2 Timothy 4 to preach the word Paul said be prepared in season and out of season correct rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction We have, um, as Rob pointed out too, uh, in the church, inside the church, our baptistry, which communicates something that we value too. Our baptistry is well disguised. It's uh, placed there towards the back, I suspect, um, well, probably pragmatically for two reasons. And it's probably worth actually mentioning these two reasons because... um, they reflect our values too. First of all, pragmatically, it's probably there, and you can confirm or deny this for me later, Alan, uh, because it, it kind of worked with the plumbing. <laughs> and Baptists typically like to make sure they are economical in their use of money. And so we've got our baptistry there, which holds something in the order of 3,000 litres of water, so it's a fairly big one. But pragmatically too, <clears throat> although I have lamented the fact that it is there, And I have actually, in our assets committee, said it would be wonderful if our baptistry could be somewhere around about here, which would actually declare, theologically, that baptism's a central plank of our theology too. However, pragmatically, it's also possibly over there in the corner because typically in the olden days, and some of you might have lived through these times, uh, people who were baptised would be given these long flowing white robes Uh, with lead weights around the bottom. Some of you might remember what I'm saying. Uh, You'd get in and the minister would put you into the water, baptism by immersion, lift you out of the water and then you'd be as wet as a shag. And to protect the dignity of the person, we have arranged the building in such a manner that they can get out of the baptistry without having to traipse across the floor in front of everybody dripping wet. Isn't that kind of us? And so if we were to put the baptistry somewhere back over here, we immediately create a little bit of a problem, something we need to weigh up in terms of our values and our theology. Well, as we conclude our little series that we've been doing on baptism, the last thing I do want to do in the series today is focus on something that we might not think all that often about, and that is the question, what actually makes Wodonga and District Baptist Church a Baptist church, and does it actually matter really anyway? And that's a valuable question to ask, that last one. Does it really matter anyway? Because I think we live in an age, in a church age, where denominational lines have been significantly blurred. And whereas once upon a time a person would have worn a label, a denominational label, with some pride and some intentionality, That's less so today. In fact, as I look around, I see people who have gathered here from all sorts of church traditions. And I think it's wonderful because we've gathered under the umbrella of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. We don't gather with a particular label on. We gather as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's an important starting point. But I do think it's still quite useful to ask the question... What does it mean to to be a Baptist? Now, if you were to ask some from outside our tradition, you might get answers like this. Well, it means uh, you're part of what's uh, labelled a sectarian group. You're kind of on the edge of the mainstream Christian denominations. Or, uh, perhaps less generously, oh, you're the people that don't drink, right? I'm not sure that's entirely true of Baptists anymore. You're the people that don't dance, right? 
I'm not sure that's true of Baptists anymore either. There are certain parameters in their minds that people have about what makes a Baptist. And it's a fair question to ask because, as I say, we've got people in our gathering here today who have come together in this place and what matters to you and what matters to me is not the label that we wear but that Jesus Christ is preached, that the Spirit of God is active amongst us, that we are seeking the advancement of Christ's kingdom in our city and beyond. That's what really matters. That's what we hold in common. So let's just for a moment speak about something a little parochial. What does it actually mean to sit with that label in this time? And again, I emphasise this, the label that you wear doesn't matter. What matters is whether Jesus is Lord of your life. That's the bottom line. Knowing where to start in uh, describing what makes a Baptist a Baptist is actually quite difficult. Unlike a football club, we don't have a team song. I've had a crack at writing one this week and you might like to sing it with me at the end of the service. Um, I'll just give you a moment to read that through. It, it does go to the tune, Tim, I have made sure. Yeah. We are not going to sing it. We don't have a particular style of clothing that defines us. We don't, uh, historically, Baptists have not been into writing creeds. This is quite an interesting observation. There are a number of other mainline denominations who are very careful about writing uh, statements of belief and creeds. Baptists typically haven't gone down that line and I'll talk a little bit about why that is the case. Uh, we don't have um, secret handshakes. I'm not going to come up to you and after the service and shake his hand and say, ah, oh, you're a true, you're a true Baptist, I can tell by your handshake. We don't do that, as some groups do. Our worship, and this is a photo that's going back a few years, our worship is not uh, dissimilar to many other churches of various shapes and flavours, so there's nothing unique about what we do here. We believe that the Bible is God's word, as do many other denominations. We believe that Jesus is the only way to be reconciled uh, with God and so there's lots of things that are not that helpful in defining who we are but there are some things that are helpful and I'll do something that I'm typically uh, in favour of doing and that is just looking back a little bit because our history actually has shaped us and our history is rather interesting it's not a long history it's a history that only goes back about 400 years and we find our ancestry uh, in the story of the Anabaptists and Cohen you might have to advance the slide for me because the clicker's not working there at the moment. Back to the Anabaptists and that doesn't surprise you given the name although the Anabaptists um, uh, have, their, have influence in other areas as well. The Anabaptists were actually a group of reformers who looked at the work that Luther uh, in the Lutheran church and Zwingli, who was a guy in Switzerland, a theologian in Switzerland, were doing and saying, this is good work that they've done, but they've not gone far enough. We need to go further than what they have to bring complete reformation. And the Anabaptists, amongst other things, insisted that a person needed to express their own faith before they were baptised. And so they began to baptise believers and let me tell you, that got them in a truckload of trouble. It got them in a truckload of trouble with both the Protestant church and the Catholic church. 
And it got them in a whole load of trouble. They were actually called Anabaptists, which literally means rebaptizers. Uh, and got them into trouble because they actually said, you know what, we're, re- we're not rebaptizing at all. We're actually baptizing because we don't believe that the baptism that was performed on an infant actually was a true baptism. So you can see why they got in trouble. They were actually questioning one of the key tenets of faith held by the church at that time. They also argued for a separation between the church and the state, which was something that Luther and Zwingli hadn't actually argued for too. Many of you will have learned about this guy, Henry VIII, uh, when you're at school. Um, he was the guy, of course, who, who forced the separation of the, uh, the Church of England, Anglican Church, ultimately from the Catholic Church, primarily because it suited his purposes. But let's not go into that element of history. But his actions initiated a great tussle in Great Britain between the Catholic and Protestant church, which saw the Church of England as the state church. But even in that context, there were people who said, he's not taken this far enough. They were called separatists. And the separatists took the Bible very, very seriously and determined to order their lives by its teaching. And they insisted that the church, the true church, is actually made up of the redeemed, not, as was often the case, of people who'd been born at a certain time or in a certain place. You see, one of the things that was happening in that time was if you were born uh, into a certain family, you were automatically a Christian, which is about as logical as saying you were born in a hospital makes you a doctor, right? But that's the thinking there was at the time. The reformers, uh, sorry, the uh, separatists said, no, that's not the case. And so they continued the work of Reformation. One of our more uh, not notable ancestors is this guy whose name is John Smythe. I rather hoped, as I was looking back in Baptist history, that we would have found somebody who uh, projected a more, uh, what kind of image, I'm going to be careful about the kind of language, this guy, seriously, the hair, good grief. He was, he was however, yeah, it's jealousy, that's the thing, you're just looking for some more. <laughs> This, uh, this fellow, John Smythe, was actually an Anglican minister in England uh, and in his thinking about theology, thinking about the Bible, uh, he started to criticise the church of the time. He was put in prison for a season because he refused to conform to the traditional patterns expected of Anglican clergy and became a separatist. He argued for the separation of the church and the state and his congregation in Gainsborough, as one, migrated from England across to Amsterdam, and there he established the first Baptist church, one of the very early pioneers of the Baptist movement. Interestingly enough, too, Smythe actually baptised himself. How about that? We think that's not possible, is it? But it is. Smythe baptised himself by taking a dipper of water and pouring it over his head. And that, my friends, rather interestingly, is how the early Baptists actually baptised. It wasn't until a little bit later in history that they reflected on what the Scriptures taught and thought, we should use this immersion method because we see that reflected in the Scriptures. The early Baptists actually baptised by tipping water over themselves or over the candidate at least. 
So there's a little snapshot of the history. What are some of the things that are core to who uh, Baptists are? Well, let me just give you a quick flying overview of some of them without being uh, exhaustive in our list. The starting point has always been, uh, amongst the movement, uh, fidelity to the Bible as the Word of God, divinely inspired and supreme in its authority for all matters of faith and conduct. Now, to put that simply, uh, Baptists have always believed that this is the, the guide for life. This is where we turn to, this is where... God speaks to us, it's a living word, the Spirit speaks to us through the word. This is enough, we don't need other people uh, beyond that with that authority to do that. Baptists have always held to the supreme, uh, significant and sole authority of the scripture in the lives of a Christian. And that picks up, I think, to something that Paul said to Timothy where... Uh, he said to young Timothy, encouraging him, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now the question is, of course, and this is one of the questions that churches have wrestled with, what do we do with issues that the Bible doesn't speak about? Take, for instance, the issue of um, illicit drug-taking where does Jesus say, do not do marijuana, for instance? Or whatever it might be, use whatever illustration that you might say. Well, the answer is, there are no specific words that Jesus gives to that issue or exceeding the speed limit or whatever it might be. But Baptists through history have actually said, you know what, the scriptures, although they may not speak specifically on issue, there are principles, there is guidance in this word that we might apply to every situation that we're going to run into in life. So we're never actually caught short in terms of knowing God's word uh, on a particular topic because God will always guide us and direct us in that. We do not typically have to rely on others who speak allegedly with the same authority as the word of God on a particular issue. Baptists have always uh, shied away from that. One of the things that, um, that stands out as we look through history is this, that we've always believed the church is made up of regenerate people. That's what actually defines the church. If you're going to draw a circle around what the church is in terms of its people, it's people who know the Lord as their saviour. As I said before, you can't become a, a, a Christian because you were born into a Christian family. You can't be a Christian just because you were born into a certain country. That's a view that is actually held by some religions to this day. If you're born in Thailand, you're automatically a Buddhist, right? To be Thai is to be Buddhist. But to be an Australian is not necessarily to be a Christian. That's something that uh, the Baptists have said right through history. The church is actually made up of regenerate people. And Baptists too, rather interestingly, have always said this is important. Uh, the church is not the building. This is just a meeting place for the church. This is the house of the church, if you like. It's the place where the church meets. And so it's interesting when you stop and think about it. Um, I might say to Diana, for instance, um, I'm just going to nip over to the church. And she knows exactly what I mean, but am I truly going to the church? The answer is no, I'm just going to the church building. I'm just going to go to the place where the church meets. You are the church. We are the church. It's not the building that we're in that makes us the church. 
We've touched on this over these last few weeks. Um, we baptise believers by immersion and, of course, what we believe about the church and baptism are closely linked. And, in fact, uh, Baptist thinking about baptism has been shaped by thinking about the church in that order, thinking about the church first and then baptism. The logic looks like this. We're thinking the church is a company of people who freely believe in Jesus Christ as Lord. We agree with that, yes. Uh, according to the New Testament, baptism is a sign of joining ourselves with the church uh, and, uh, sorry, with Christ and the church. We agree with that. And so, therefore, baptism is something for believers. That's the, the line of the logic that Baptists have uh, worked their way through in thinking about what it means to be baptised. As I said, rather interestingly, though early Baptists didn't practice baptism in the way that we do, they did. Uh, they, they poured, they tipped water over the candidate, and it was only as time went by that they came to conclude that baptism by immersion was the normative method, because that was the method that they see demonstrated. They saw demonstrated in uh, in the scriptures, and concurrent with that the early Baptists rejected infant baptism for a couple of reasons. First of all, because they believed that entry into the church was only possible through a personal decision to faith. And second, in the early days, because they believed baptisms performed by the Anglican church were illegitimate because the Anglican church was an illegitimate church. You can imagine the tension that that kind of caused in those days too. Certainly not going to argue that case today. What else uh, might we say? What else stands Baptist apart from other Christian groups? Well, let me just uh, throw a couple more at you before we finish up. Baptists have consistently rejected hierarchies of authority in the church. We don't have a pyramid with somebody sitting on top as the supreme leader and then sub-lieutenants, all that sort of stuff, all the way down to the laity. If at all our triangle is turned up the other way, where governance, where the authority of the church lies in the hands of the congregation. Quite different to other denominations. We believe very much in the priesthood of all believers, which means that there is no, uh, no expectation. There has to be someone between you and God as a mediator of grace, a priest, if you like. You can all act as priests. You all have access directly to the throne of grace. Every one of you here can speak right to Jesus even in this moment. We don't have to have someone else between us doing that. There are times where it's helpful to have others in that journey, of course, but we don't have to have uh, people in ecclesial authority over us. We believe very much in the idea of congregational governance. Now, uh, there's some pros and some cons, of course, in this space, uh, uh, figuring out how that all works. But it's rather, I think it's a rather beautiful thing in some ways that each congregation gets to choose, gets to set the agenda in terms of their life together. We are part of an association. We're part of the broader Baptist Union of Victoria and very helpfully those who have been in charge down there for the last 10 years or so have actually kind of changed the language. They're calling themselves the office of the union which may, makes a big difference because they have no authority over us. They're very helpful to us. They help us with insurance. They help us with the safe church stuff. They do all sorts of things to help us. But if uh, the Baptist Union came and said, um, look, that fellow you've got up there, David Hodgins, he's an absolute rabbit. You need to sack him. You know what you could do? 
you could thumb your nose at them and say, well, we kind of like him, we're going to keep him. I hope. (laughs) And equally, if the congregation here said, gosh, that David Hodgins is a total rabbit, we're going to get rid of him, the Baptist Union said, no, no, don't do that. You could say, forget it, that's our decision. Congregational governance means that the congregation has the ability to set its own direction and its own agenda. We have enshrined in our constitution a statement of beliefs there, a general summary of what we believe to help keep us on track. But generally speaking, each congregation develops its own flavour, its own mission, its own style of leadership. We have an eldership here, other churches have deacons and elders, other churches have leadership teams, other churches have different styles of worship, different liturgies, all sorts of stuff, and that's fine because we have the liberty to be able to do that. Baptist churches have typically been very strong on this idea uh, of the separation between the church and the states. I've spoken to some leaders in our denomination who lament uh, the fact that back in the very early days in Melbourne, when Melbourne was first being laid out, when the streets were being set out and when land was being allocated, uh, some people in government authority came to the Baptist church leadership and said, we're going to offer you this plot of land on Swanson Street and I can't remember which other street it is. Uh, You know, you can have this, we'll grant this to you. And because there was this strong aversion to connection with government and state, bless their hearts, those early Baptists said, no, we're not going to take that. We're going to buy our own little piece of land and they did that up on Collins Street, out of the way, kind of in a bit of a corner. So instead of having one of these great corner blocks, the Baptists went and hid around the corner because they were true to their values. In good conscience, they didn't want to actually blur that line between the church and the state. Interestingly enough, while um, Baptists actually believe that God mandates both the state and the church, and there's a role for both, they are unique roles and each have unique authority and so there shouldn't be overlap between the two. This will become an issue for us, I think, in the future as, as government sort of gets its finger more and more into the religious pie. And we kind of wrestled a little bit with that over these last couple of years. You know, where do we, where do we push back when the government starts to overstep if we perceive it as that. As Baptists, we've typically been very careful about keeping those things apart. A couple more, some other distinctives. A strong belief in religious liberty, that is the right for people to follow whatever religious persuasion they choose. We won't coerce, we won't force, we won't pressure, we won't knuckle people into believing the same things as us. If you hold a view in good conscience, then you hold that view in good conscience, I'll respect that. I might not agree with it, but I'll respect that. Uh, Baptists have historically defended the rights of individuals to hold opinions which may even be at odds uh, with ours if it's held in good conscience. On a more positive note, uh, Baptists typically have had a very strong commitment to the missionary task. There's some very, very famous names in Baptist history who have been uh, central to the work of overseas mission. If you have a look at the history, even here in Victoria, there's been a strong history of, uh, of mission from the denomination. And just um, perhaps uh, second to last... Um, 
although we don't have an ecclesial hierarchy, we don't have bishops and in a hierarchy like that, we do typically appoint ministers over the congregation. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean somehow we're superior? Absolutely not. Because we serve as one amongst equals. We are empowered to do the work of ministry by the congregation who underwrites the cost of our salaries so that we're freed up to do that work on your behalf. But I don't have any authority other than uh, the... the, uh, the authority that's given to me by the congregation. We don't have authority set up in the way that other denominations do. And finally, um, and perhaps most importantly, Baptists have and I believe must resist the temptation to allow a label to define who we are. And that actually allows us to flourish in all sorts of ways because if I was to take you to Wangaratta, Wangaratta Baptist looks very different to this one as does Coriong, as does Korowa, as does every other Baptist church in Australia. We're able to flourish as God empowers us with the gifts that are amongst us, with the people that we have, with the opportunities that we have, with the unique neighbourhoods that we live in. Uh, we can be different to one another because we are a company of believers seeking God, looking to the leading of God's Holy Spirit, serving Christ wherever we might be found. And one of the, one of the absolute strong, non-negotiable elements of what it is to be a Baptist is that we want to follow Jesus. And that we won't compromise on. We want to follow Jesus wherever he might take us in mission. For, being, uh, sorry, for Baptists, being a Christian is not about believing a lot of things about Jesus but it is all about serving Jesus and following Jesus through the Holy Spirit. We're going to pray and then conclude our service with worship again. Next week, as I said, we're going to change direction completely. As I have said on the past couple of Sundays while we've been here, we have been talking about baptism. We invite anyone who perhaps has been thinking about that to continue that conversation. If you've never been baptised, uh, to come and talk to us. If you've been baptised in another tradition and God is speaking to you at this time, then I welcome you to speak to me about that too. But let's join together in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us and our desire and we affirm again with our words and with our actions in terms of how we structure our church is that we want to follow you. We want to hear your spirit speak. We want to follow in the footsteps of our Saviour. And as you take us out into the world, as you take us into our community, as you take us into our workplaces, we do actually put aside um, that label uh, and we carry the, the mantle of being a follower of Jesus, a follower of Jesus who seeks to serve you faithfully, a follower of Jesus who trusts implicitly in your word, a follower of Jesus who have their eyes focused on you and you alone. Lord, we give you thanks again for the opportunity to reflect on these things today. Perhaps unusual in some ways to think about this stuff, but important nonetheless because it grounds us in who we are, it shapes what we do, it tells people in the community who we are, and it draws us together as, uh, as worshippers of Christ. Lord, bless our time, bless the rest of this morning together as we continue to worship now, as we fellowship um, together later on. For you, Lord Jesus, are here, your Holy Spirit's moving amongst us and we honour and worship you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.